You're listening to the Liberty News Radio Network, and this is the Political Cesspool. The Political Cesspool, known across the South and worldwide as the South's foremost populist conservative radio program. And here to guide you through the murky waters of the Political Cesspool is your host, James Edwards. We rode on horses made of sticks He wore black and I wore white He would always win the fight Bang, bang He shot me down Bang, bang I hit the ground Bang, bang That awful sound Bang, bang My baby shot me down Welcome back, everybody, to TPC. We are kicking off now a special series that we will be featuring each month intermittently, TPC at 20, a retrospective. We have had so many great interviews over the years. Really, I mean, I'd like to think every week. Uh, But some are absolutely iconic in terms of their historical nature. And uh, this is one of them. I mean, this is one that we still get emails about. I mean, we conducted this interview in 2008, and people still email about it almost monthly. Well, it's really the acid test about why is there a political cesspool. We get interviews of people who have very interesting, unique perspectives, people that actually were at the center of the hurricane, for example, at Selma, and at the Montgomery uh, bus boycott, things like that. We've done all kinds, but and this is if, one if, of them. If it hadn't been for the political cesspool, we would never have had this recorded. It would be lost to history. And the left wants him lost. They do not want people to hear what the truth was about Montgomery bus boycott and about Selma. Now, uh, Officer Lackey passed away about 10 years ago at 90 years of age, but he is the one pictured in that iconic photograph, fingerprinting Rosa Parks. He had dealings with Martin Luther King, obviously up close and personal. He was the chief of police in Montgomery. Very successful personal life. He was the chief of the uh, Montgomery, uh, Alabama Police Department. All right. So, and then he went on into business. After he did that for a long time, then he went into another business for for a number of decades as well. Well, anyway, back in two thousand eight, uh, even before you occupied the seat you do now, when Bill Rowland was the primary co-host, this was an interview that Bill Rowland and he's the voice you'll hear when we first start out. Uh, Bill Rowland conducted this interview primarily. Uh, I had just spoken at an event with Officer Lackey in Alabama, and uh, we hit it off, and I invited him on the program. And this is what it sounded like back in the summer of 2008. Uh, this is an incredible interview that TPC conducted with Officer Drew Lackey, former police chief of Montgomery, Alabama, during the height of the Civil Rights Movement, and these were his reflections in the mid-2000s. To welcome you to the show. We are pleased, honored, and privileged to have you on the air with us. Officer Lackey, welcome to the political cesspool. Uh, thank you, sir. It's an honor to be with you. Well, as I was saying earlier, um, the Civil Rights Movement was hardly the saintly march and holy crusade that has been portrayed by the school books and by the media over the years. And you've written this book, Another View of the Civil Rights Movement, uh, in brief, what is your view? What was the, the view that you had back in the 1960s while the South was uh, being put through the Civil Rights Movement? Well, my view was that this uh, so-called Civil Rights Movement uh, 
headed by Martin Luther King, was a, really a farce. Uh, he was using the civil rights issue to raise money and uh, further his cause and have the parties and do his womanizing uh, throughout the country. And uh, in my opinion, he was more interested in tearing America down than he was with the plight of his own people. Well, now, Officer Lackey, when Rosa Parks was arrested for violating the, the segregation laws in uh, Alabama, she did this, as, as most people know now, it was an orchestrated and a staged event, but she refused to give up her seat on the bus but but we don't really know anything about the man who she refused to uh, uh, move for this man. Who was this man, and why was he trying to take that seat in particular? I think you mentioned this to us at the convention in, in Alabama. Well, he was, uh, I don't have his name, but he was an elderly man and, uh, you know, uh, feeble. And uh, he, you know, he couldn't stand too good and really needed to sit down. So she wasn't being bullied, in other words, by some uh, somebody trying to provoke her into uh, uh, civil disobedience. She, she was, she was, this was a legitimate reason for her to give up her seat to an old man who uh, was obviously at least uh, semi-disabled. Uh, that's correct. Well, that's right. now, let me ask you, before Rosa Parks' arrest had any uh, city, uh, you know, Montgomery, Birmingham, any city had problems with blacks violating the, the segregation codes like that? Or did this just suddenly come out of nowhere? That is, she suddenly is arrested and this seems to just take fire and all of a sudden it's a big uh, civil rights issue? Well, uh, to my knowledge, we didn't have any problem uh, now prior to... Uh Rosa Parks arrest, we had uh, two other women that were arrested uh, for the same violation. One was arrested in uh, <clears throat> March of 1955, and then the other one was October of 55, and then Rosa uh, was in December of 55. Of course, we all know that uh, she was handpicked. She was a secretary of the NAACP here in Montgomery. Uh, she had uh, lunch with her, her attorney, Fred Gray, the day that she was arrested. And um, she attended the uh, commerce school in Tennessee, you know, where Martin Luther attended and Abernathy and others. So uh, it was a hand-picked deal from the word go. Well, of course, other events came out of that. And as you told us, that actually the picture that's on your book, the famous picture, that that was not taken after her arrest for uh, taking the seat on the bus, but was actually uh, taken because of her participation in the Montgomery bus boycott. What was what, what was she doing to get arrested during that uh, uh boycott.
I, I want to take a I want to take a break right there, just very quickly, and add some thoughts. And well, first of all, it's great to hear Bill Rowland's voice back on this program. You know, he died over a decade ago himself, and uh, he was just such a seminal part, just such a foundational cornerstone of this program. And he spearheaded that interview. I was in the studio that day. I had spoken with Drew Lackey at an event, and I participate in this interview. But he was the one who prepared for it. He was the one who took the the lead chair in this one. Uh, and did such a fantastic job. Now, this is just some of the opening salvos, but a couple of key takeaways early, Keith, is uh, number one, did you did anybody ever know about this? Is this taught in the public school uh, curriculum that it was a feeble man, an elderly man who could barely stand, who was the one who refused to give up his seat? That's number one. And then Drew Lackey did mention what we knew, uh, but what so few people did, that this was a communist stage pro- uh, production from the from the get-go, uh, she was handpicked to play this role. She was a member of the NAACP, and it was all orchestrated. Well, you're absolutely right. I didn't know about all of that. Let me tell you this. The communist school he was talking about is called the Highlander Folk School. It was right over the Alabama-Tennessee line in Tennessee in Mont Eagle, Tennessee, run by a communist named Miles Horton. And basically what it was was the Paris Island for civil rights workers. Civil rights workers from the north, many of them Jewish, were funneled into here and taught about the uh, workings of peaceful, so-called peaceful protest and Gandhian dissent. They wanted you to, everything was being done with an eye towards what the uh, TV cameras would record. And of course, the media then as now was dominated by Jewish interests. Jewish interests are uh, largely left-wing, they were behind the civil rights movement without Jewish money, masterminding, and uh, organization, and media control. The civil rights movement would never have gotten off the ground, but they, they learned there how to manipulate public opinion, and she had been there with, and Martin Luther King had been there also. He was another one of their protégés and star pupils. They sent them down, the people in the, for example, the busing, you know, the uh, Freedom Riders from the north coming down trying to provoke arrests and whatnot. This is all part of the plan, and these people were not just innocent people caught up in a situation. This they was were, something. Th- this was mastermind. This was a, str- a plot to basically change American society, and we said communists. Back then, you said communists or Jewish, you have to say what, and I repeat, I'm sorry, I, I repeat myself, because Jewish and communists were basically uh, synonyms back then. Well, this was the thing. I mean, it wasn't, um, it wasn't white Southerners who were marching with so-called Dr. King. It was communists, peaceniks, hippies, and overwhelmingly Jews. Well, like Swerner and Goodman. Swerner well, and Goodman were from New York. But the South was so innocent, they didn't know about this back then. I don't know if we would have known about it back no, then. No, the thing is, basically, they keep it hidden to this day to the extent that they can. All right. But we're, un, uh, we're, we're unmasking the, the fraud. Let's get back to it right now. We're going to play four separate clips. You've heard from one. Bill Rowland spearheading this interview. Let's go back to Bill and uh, Chief Drew Lackey. And she was one of the nanny people that was involved and indicted uh, for violating the boycott law. Uh, the deputy sheriff at Montgomery County, the fingerprint man, he called me and asked me would I be willing to help him the next day because they had these 
uh, 90 people coming in, and I agreed to go up and help him, and that's where the, when they took that picture. Well, I, I was reading in your book, it, it always seemed interesting to me that Martin Luther King and some of the other civil rights activists, some of the other civil rights leaders, seemed to be only one phone call away from uh, the White House or from people like uh, Bobby Kennedy. It seemed that they had access to the highest offices of power when they needed it, and yet in the South uh, we were struggling against uh, uh, riots and violence caused by these people. What do you, what do you, what is your opinion on that? Why do you think they had such ready access to John Kennedy, um, Lyndon Johnson, and and Bobby Kennedy? Uh, well, uh, in my opinion, they were uh, helping back this movement, and uh, you're correct. They had direct line to uh, Bobby Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson, and uh, uh, President Kennedy. Uh, during the uh, Freedom Rider uh, episode that happened here in Montgomery, I picked up John Siegenthaler out of the street and uh, the hospital about two blocks away and got him to the hospital. And he immediately called uh, Bobby Kennedy at Hyannisport. And... Uh, he had a list in his pocket of all the Freedom Riders that was on that bus. So uh, they were, Bobby Kennedy and them were behind it, uh, helped sponsor it, and, and see that it was, uh, you know, followed up. Well, uh, Officer Lackey, it's again, to, to reiterate, what an honor it is to be able to talk with you today. This is, again, Bill, and, and for everyone listening around the world today to our broadcast, the ability to, to speak with someone who was a first-hand witness uh, of this history in the making is, is an opportunity very rarely afforded to anyone, particularly of, of a historical, uh, an aspect of history that's so uh, important. And Officer Lackey, I want to ask you about uh, some of the media propaganda of the time. And I know you, you mentioned this in your book. I had the opportunity to, of course, buy this book from you in person in Alabama a couple of weeks ago. I have read it. And you address in your book many things surrounding the so-called civil rights movement, but one of which I always thought was so incredible was the fact that the so-called civil rights activists were the ones that were the peaceful demonstrators and then you know according to the network news footage of the time these peaceful black activists would come into town and the mean-spirited police officers would unleash the hounds and the water hoses and everything else on them uh, is that the way it was or was the the truth of the matter a little bit differently than what people would have seen on television well it was it was a lot different than what you've seen on television I mean the uh, this civil rights movement attracted uh, every black criminal that you can think of, revolutionaries, and every thug that you can, would come in contact with, and uh, they would uh, uh, curse the police, uh, spit on the police, uh, do everything they could to try to incite 
uh, a right. And see, uh, Martin Luther King, he used what I call a big lie technique. Uh, he'd go around saying he was preaching nonviolence, but violence followed him everywhere he he went. Now, you've never heard of King ever chastising any of you rioters and looters and that <laughs> it, it happened all over this over this country. And uh, I can't find anywhere in the Constitution that gives these people the right to burn, loot, and do the things that they did uh, and be protected under the so-called Civil Rights Banner. Officer Lackey, excellent answer, by the way, and that is, of course, how I knew it to be. Uh, stock footage notwithstanding. But were you and the entire city of Montgomery Police Department, was there a very real threat that these activists, so to speak, would burn down the city? I mean, do you think that was their intention, and would they have gotten away with it if you had not acted accordingly? Uh, <clears throat> that was their intention, uh, to come in and, uh, and burn the town down. Uh, now, I believe if we hadn't took the action that we did, uh, this would have happened. But we uh, decided that uh, we took an oath to protect the lives and the property of this city and use that force necessary. Now, it was unfortunate that we killed a couple of arsonists that were teenagers. But we had no way of knowing uh, their age. One of them was 16, one 17. Uh, after that happened, we got a lot of calls that they were going to come in by the bus loads and uh, burn the town down. And, of course, uh, I let them know that we were going to use that force necessary to protect our city. And that uh, they could leave like those other two in a box. Well, well, now, Officer Lackey, I notice in your book you talk also about uh, not only the arrests of, of um, troublemakers in the civil rights movement, but also Klansmen and other troublemakers uh, who were opposing integration and opposing the civil rights movement, and that doesn't seem to be covered very much by the history books or by the media either, that uh, you, you were not uh, partial when it came to stopping lawbreakers. Uh, no, that is correct. The news media didn't give us uh, hardly any coverage on that, and uh, we had to make some arrests of Klansmen, you know. Uh, our job was to keep law and order, and we couldn't pick and choose, you know. Uh, well, now we got very little coverage, you know, in regards to that. Uh, well, tell us a little bit about the Freedom Riders, who they were, where they came from, and some of their behaviors while they were uh, under your jurisdiction. All right, we were going to take a pause right there from uh, these clips. When we come back, we're going to hear Officer Lackey's answer to Bill Rowland's question about the Freedom Riders. But uh, let's just take a break. i got to say this. To have participated in that interview remains an honor in my life. And... 
I'm very proud of the work that we do now here on TPC. The show we've done tonight, the show we did last week, the show we did last month, last year. I'm proud of the work we did then too, Keith. We have been consistent from day one through 20 years. We have never wavered. We've never backed down. We've never stopped preaching the truth without retreat, surrender, or apologies, as is our motto. But listening to that again, and I haven't listened to this in years, listening to that again, I hope people who have never heard it before, who have you know begun listening to this show in recent years, you know, are getting something from this, but this is a true historical interview. This is the kind of stuff you should be having on the History Channel. But what's interesting to me, I think my big takeaway from that last clip was it's the exact same tactics. The only things that have changed from the 1960s until the 2020s is that the police stand down now. When they do the exact same thing that the so-called peaceful protesters were doing in the 1960s, now they just let them ransack it. They didn't do that in the South back then, and God bless them for it. Well, you can tell by that footage that Drew Lackey was quite aged at the time that he did this. Thank goodness you stepped in to take his... Oh, he was already in his mid-80s, yeah. Right. But what this shows is that things like the Freedom Rider incident, which is totally portrayed as a good versus bad and uh, uh, righteousness. Pure good versus pure evil. Yeah. Yeah. And it was just a stage production, just like the Montgomery uh, bus boycott, like the Selma bridge incident, everything that they did. And they're doing it now. Nothing has changed. When you listen to Drew Lackey, though, what are you thinking? I'm thinking that this is the truth. It just has it has the sound of truth. You could tell the sincerity in his voice. Yeah, this is not... Because he didn't gain anything from any of this. No. There was, you know, when they brought those Freedom Riders down, that was a planned event just like the D-Day invasion of France, okay? The left in America, supported by the Democrat president and uh, his attorney general, John Kennedy and his brother Bobby Kennedy were in it thick as thieves, and they were trying to present a production, a, a, a theatrical production for the news media to run. They knew when they would have to turn on the camera. They edited it. If, For example, if one of the rioters got the best of the of policeman, he was beating him up, stabbing him or something like that, that landed on the cutting room floor. They wanted to have all this uh, footage of supposedly brutal. The cameras started. It wasn't back in the day where you had iPhones. Everybody could record the thing from start to finish. The ca- the news cameras, ABC, CBS, NBC, the three channels you had back then, they started rolling when the officers retaliated to the attack. You didn't see the provocation. Well, see, if you had it to do over again, they would basically, the, the thing for the uh, southern policemen like Drew Lackey to do would have been to go after the uh cameras okay because they were the ones who were creating this false narrative about what was going on they wanted to whip up public opinion against the south and segregation and guess what you know why don't they treat january 6 uh protesters like they did the civil rights protesters in the uh, uh freedom rider incident in the montgomery boy bus boycott the Selma incident, other ones like that, they do it because they're on the side of the police and the forces of repression in January the 6th. On the other hand, they were on the side of the protesters. There was a book written in the late 60s by Marshall McLuhan called The Medium is the Message. And his idea was that if you control the media, you control the people's perception of reality. And the civil rights movement should be exhibit one to that. That's exactly what happened in the civil rights movement. 
And what happened was that this false narrative became the official narrative. And if it were not for interviews like this one with uh, Drew Lackey, there would be no record I, of what actually happened. I think it's so important, and this is why I wanted to do it, because, again, and I said this once tonight already, when we revisited, I believe it was December before last, so, you know, 13, 14 months ago, uh, the interview with George Wallace Jr., I just thought that there was something really fun about that, playing clips and then talking about it, and that was such a good interview, and we've had so many of those that are so old now, I mean, so many years ago. I mean, they're evergreen in terms of their content, but... But it, it was shows you just exactly what we've said is that the civil rights movement was the first salvo in the culture war. And the people who are listeners to the show in recent years that have never heard them, we're going to give you 12 shots at it during this retrospective series. This is number one. We'll be right Pursuing back. liberty, using the Constitution as our guide. You're listening to Liberty News Radio. USA News, I'm Corey Myers. New reports say a prosecutor in Donald Trump's Georgia criminal case paid for the Fulton County District Attorney to accompany him on flights. Court documents revealing that Special Prosecutor Nathan Wade purchased multiple flights for him and DA Fawny Willis in the months before they hit Trump with election interference charges. Wade's wife and one of Trump's co-defendants have accused Wade and Willis of of having an affair. It's not clear if those allegations will affect the former president's case in Georgia. Former President Donald Trump has some clout behind him with another endorsement. Former GOP presidential candidate and Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina is putting his support behind Donald Trump instead of the candidate from his own state, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. Scott says Trump will protect Social Security, lower taxes, and restore law and order in America. Haley said she thought it was interesting that Trump is aligning himself with Washington insiders when he claimed he wanted to drain the swamp. A grand jury has to now decide whether any law enforcement officers should be criminally charged for the failed response to the Robb Elementary shooting. This development coming a day after a report by the Department of Justice saying that the Uvalde shooting was an unimaginable horror and a series of cascading failures in tactics, communications and preparedness. May 24th of 2022 was the awful day that 19 children and two teachers were killed at the elementary school by an 18-year-old gunman. Officers waited 77 minutes to breach the school. This is USA News. Okay, I'm talking funny because I'm in the witness protection program. I have too much credit card debt and I don't want people to find me. Okay, I'm just kidding. We're going to talk about credit card debt. Right, those plastic things that we all have in our wallet. Are you in your 50s or 60s and you're still carrying around a mound of credit card debt? Wouldn't it be nice to start banking that money and save a little money for retirement down the road? We help people restructure their credit card debt all the time. We show people how they can get out of credit card debt in months, not years. Listen, you'll be carrying around credit card debt for the 
rest of your life unless you deal with it right now. We offer a free consultation so you can learn how you can finally wipe out your credit card debt and start saving money. Give us a free call right now. Call Debt Solutions Network now. 866-451-3328. 866-451-3328. That's 866-451-3328. Hello, TPC family. It's James, and I've got to tell you that I sleep better at night knowing that there are organizations like the Conservative Citizens Foundation. The purpose of the Conservative Citizens Foundation is to promote the principles of limited government, individual liberty, equality before the law, property rights, law and order, judicial restraint, and states' rights, while at the same time exploring the dangers posed by liberalism to our national interests and cultural institutions. The Conservative Citizens Foundation also seeks to educate the public on the dangers of extremist ideologies like critical race theory and cultural Marxism. I've worked with the good people at the Conservative Citizens Foundation for many years, and their work comes with my complete endorsement. For more information and to keep up with all the latest conservative news headlines, please check out their website, americafirst.com. That's M-E-R-I-C-A-1-S-T dot com, americafirst.com. Antelope Hill Publishing is America's leading publisher of dissident books, bringing you a wide variety of new translations and original works on every subject from the Spanish Civil War to the funding behind the transgender movement. Antelope Hill publishes books that mainstream publishers won't touch, full of information that challenges the political status quo and brings real culture to the reading public at an affordable price. If you count yourself as a political dissident, then you owe it to yourself to check out the Antelope Hill catalog with exclusive offerings like Rebel Mountain by Kurt Eggers, a brand new reprint of the infamous You Gentiles by Marie Samuel, and now the treatise of a January 6th prisoner in the American regime... There is something there for everyone, and new titles are added every month. Check out the complete catalog today at antelopehillpublishing.com. That's antelopehillpublishing.com. I'm James Edwards, and I want you to check out antelopehillpublishing.com. Well, welcome back, everybody. Whether you've heard this interview before or never have heard it before, it's interesting to hear it again. Keith, you haven't heard this in years, and you're enjoying it tonight, no doubt about it. Now, I, I just got to say, because we have, to, we have uh, two more clips we've got to play, and they're a little bit longer than the ones we played in the first half of the show. You cannot find this book anywhere. I have a copy of it. We actually gave copies of it out during uh, a fundraising incentive you know, years we and years and years ago. We need to get it printed. Well, Antelope Hill, you just heard the uh, ad from Antelope Hill Publishing. They did an exhaustive search trying to find one of his heirs, one of his kids that would sign over the rights, and it just ran into a brick wall. They just couldn't get it done. And uh, so this is out of uh, print, out of publish. Uh, you can't find it anywhere. But you can find this interview, and we're going to listen to more of it now. Bill Rowland now asking Chief Drew Lackey about his uh, opinion on the Freedom Riders. I think it's public domain. About the Freedom Riders, who they were, where they came from, and some of their behaviors while they were uh, under your jurisdiction or on your watch. Uh, what was the, the, the Freedom Rider, um, you know, the, the whole Freedom Rider situation? Why, when they came to town, what, what, what did you you know, discover about them? Well, they were uh, very belligerent, and uh, it was apparent that they were, you know, they were looking for 
to have some conflict uh, with the police or with other people. Uh, they, you know, their mannerisms and their speech and everything uh, indicated that they, you know, wanted to stir up a conflict. Uh, see, King, this is one of his tactics that uh, I think he trained his people to do was to uh, have these conflicts between the uh, police and the demonstrators or civil rights people and so forth. And then when it was all over, he's going to blame the police uh, for causing the riot. Then he would charge police brutality when you uh, put the riot down or, or uh, brought order back to the city. Yeah, this was his favorite uh, <laughs> police, br police brutality. And if you, if you followed the, uh, go back to Fidel Castro down in Cuba, he started using the same technique uh, in Cuba uh, when the communists were taking over Cuba. And, of course, Martin Luther King was uh, uh, knee-deep with the Communist Party. Uh, they came into Montgomery. Uh, we knew who they were when they, when they came in, and uh, we usually put a tail on them, followed them, and then uh, we did have some luck with the black leadership. Uh, talking to them about getting these people out of Montgomery. They wasn't there to help, to help them, you know. Well, you actually going. met with Martin Luther King at one point, didn't you, about, uh, you know, coordinating uh, security or uh, trying to prevent some of these problems? Yeah, I had a, I had a meeting with him, and uh, I had a friend of mine over the black uh, pharmacist, and he set up a meeting, and... Uh, uh, I discussed uh, with King, uh, you know, uh, some things that we needed to do and he needed to do. And uh, at first he turned down uh, any security from us. And then he, of course, he changed his mind before I left. <clears throat> and uh, I told him we could uh like to give him security, we couldn't guarantee a hundred percent, but we could uh, cut down the odds on it. And uh, he admitted that he could not uh, control, you know, all of his people. That he had some people in there that was going to uh, get out of land and so forth. And he said, "I just, you know, I can't control all my people." Well, I see here uh, you have a copy of a newspaper article from that time where, uh, you know, Martin Luther King, who was um, uh, preaching peace and uh, uh, nonviolence, actually tried to get a permit for a gun. Yeah, yeah, he tried to get a permit for, for a pistol, and, uh, of he was, you know, he was turned down, and... Uh, you know, the, the 
the so-called peaceful movement was not what it was cracked up to be. I mean, these people were out to uh, stir up trouble, and this is the way that he got the sympathizers and uh, money coming into his organization uh, was having conflict. Uh, they'd even, uh, when they'd be marching uh, on our streets, sidewalks, the males would uh, break off sometime and go relieve themselves on a white person's lawn. <laughs> well, uh, that, that sounds about right. <laughs> if, if that ain't, uh, you know, I mean, that's trying to to uh, have a conflict there. That you know, if it was my house, I'd be coming out of there with a shotgun. Well, most uh, most normal people would. And is this what led you, Officer Lackey, to to write your book? Uh, you know, we were talking earlier about another historical aspect and the importance that that books. And, and eyewitness testimony play. Is this what you wanted people to understand? I mean, what, what, well, let me rephrase the question and ask it in, in this manner. Why is it important to you that 60 years after the fact, people understand the, the, the truth about the civil rights movement? Let me ask you that way. Well, um, after I retired from the police department, I went to work with the uh, state and put in 30 years there, but uh, to read and hear these people talking about, you know, how great King was and all this uh, stuff and not have any uh, negative uh, stuff printed against him, I decided it's time to unveil, you know, <laughs> But yours is more than just, and it's so well written, and it's an easy read, and it's just chock full of important historical eyewitness testimony. But much more than the propaganda that one would read about King, yours is is an actual factual document. Am I right? Uh, that is right. Uh, that is correct. And uh, you see, correct King had those. Uh, uh, FBI files and uh, tapes sealed at 2027. And, and Bill, I'll ask this to you and Officer Lackey. Do you think that in 2027 they'll even be released? I don't think they will. I've, uh, I've, I've tried to uh, to get to get in there and have them released, and I, I hadn't had any luck. On, on that, and I don't think they will be released. If we can get them released now, you you could see a lot of these politicians running for cover. Oh, a lot of the politicians would run for cover. Well, I, you know, you the standard uh, uh, excuse for not release releasing his uh, the the files on King was that it would uh, ruin his reputation. I think that's what Coretta Scott King said when she testified before Congress about uh, doing that, uh, sealing the, t the records. But you say that many politicians would run for cover, too. Oh, yeah, these politicians, uh, these liberal politicians and the liberal news media, they flocked to him, and uh, he more or less had them eating out of his hand. You know what I mean? It's sickening uh, when you when you see it 
uh, see it happen that these uh, you know politicians are running over over each other to try to get to him and you know <laughs> do their thing and. All right, so uh, we'll pause right there. I just want to say, in listening to this, the thought occurred to me, you know, Jared Taylor and I had a trip along with John Friend and Brad Griffin and uh, John Hill to Selma, Alabama. We spent a day in Selma, and Jared did two featured pieces on that, a video as well as an article for Amrin. We did an entire show on it last summer. You know, Selma is the true legacy of the civil rights movement. You go to Selma now, and you remember what we told you about it and. at Amrin and here. That's the true legacy of the civil rights movement. And although I never had the chance to talk to him, I found a print interview that a university did with the former sheriff of Dallas County, Alabama. And Selma, Which is where Montgomery, or where Selma is. Correct. It? Selma and Selma's not too far from Montgomery. And he talked about everything Drew Lackey's talking about, how the the marchers on so-called Bloody Sunday were doing everything they could to provocate the police, to provoke the police, I should say, that they would come into the courthouse and urinate and defecate and all of this stuff into the city buildings. And it wasn't until, you know, the law had had their fill in that some of the officers were injured, were injured that they, you know, finally started fighting back. And he was asked in this, what was the most surprising thing to you about what happened in Selma on Bloody Sunday, again, so-called Bloody Sunday. And he said that he never believed that the American people would buy it. He, he never believed that the American people would buy the mythology put forth by the media. He thought that people would e- either know better or see through it, and certainly Southerners did at the time, but through the careful cultivation of this mythology, now people just almost take it as, as gospel truth. And I thought that that was very sad and also very profound that he believed that the truth would prevail over the media lies. Well, he was naive, okay? Nobody really had anticipated the power of media control that was brought home to the American people by the Civil Rights Movement. There are lots of legacies of the Civil Rights Movement today. When you look at American cities that have been taken over by black politicians— which are rife with corruption, bribery, and sheer incompetence, that's one of the legacies of the Civil Rights Movement. Look at the decline of public education in America since 1954 when the Brown decision was handed down. That's another legacy. Basically, our, the, the decline in public morals that has happened. You know, look at the movies in the 1950s, just pull one out like North to Alaska or Tammy and the Bachelor and compare that to what Hollywood is producing now. Take a look at like Wolf of Wall Street or Yellowstone and things like this. You know, there's gratuitous sex all over the place. That would never have been tolerated back then. That's another legacy of the Civil Rights Movement. We need to understand that everything that is supposed to be good is actually bad, but you can't talk about the bad, the decline in morals, the decline in competence, the decline in quality, in public education, in governance, in uh, cities that are controlled by uh, black politicians, uh, or anything that, uh, you know, that has, uh, our popular culture has been debased, and it's all because of the triumph of liberalism and 
the people behind the news media were the usual suspects. Well, and this is the thing, and we got one minute, and we got to go back to our final, our fourth and final clip of this interview that I wanted to play tonight. This is by no means the complete hour-long interview, but we're playing uh, some of the highlights. And it's that, again, I share your disdain, Keith, for these so-called phony conservatives like Sean Hannity who rail against liberalism but say that, as you like to put it, the civil rights movement was entirely sacrosanct and you know, certainly a conservative cause of freedom and so on and so forth. This is the real I'm deal. Trying to claim that Martin Luther King was a conservative is so laughable. Well, some, you know, even the conservatives now, though, are saying because, again— you know, this was something that we did back in the mid-2000s. Now, in 2024, the worm is beginning to turn. And I saw one mainstream conservative this week say Martin Luther King wasn't a hero. He was a leftist and a communist and an atheist. And that, you know, pretty well, much sums it up. you could add to that rapist, a, a <laughs> sexual and physical abuser of women. He was sitting all on right, the sideline right, laughing right. yeah, at one of the people, one of the men in his entourage raping a woman. So they say. Uh, I believe it. But well, that, that's, that's all documented by the FBI. I don't doubt it. I'm just saying I wasn't there. But, uh, but I, I do know the other stuff is absolutely true. And uh, let's play one more clip uh, with Officer Drew Lackey. And again, ladies and gentlemen, how about Bill Rowland? You know, the role he played in our formative years uh, certainly shaped us and gave us a North Star. Absolutely. And I really appreciate everybody who's ever been a part of uh, our team and production See, staff. Bill goes back far enough that he remembers some of these things firsthand. Well, he was younger than you, but yeah, <laughs> he died too early, but he was, you know, so anyway, uh, he was the best among us. Let's go back. Uh, one more clip here with uh, Officer Drew Lackey. When was the worst day for you, Officer Lackey, during the Civil Rights Movement? What day do you recall as being the most frightening or the most disturbing uh, from a policeman's point of view? Uh, the, the, this particular day that I recall, uh, Abernathy and, uh, had organized a group at, and they were meeting at, uh, King's Church. King wasn't there. And they was going to march from his church to the Capitol, <clears throat> and uh, they'd already given, put this out, you know, the news media and everything. And uh, when uh, I arrived at the Capitol, the white people were all over the lawns and everything else up there at the Capitol. Uh, it's probably at least, uh, oh, I'd say 10 or 12,000 whites in that particular neighborhood uh, of the uh, Capitol Complex buildings. They was on the lawns around there. And uh, I sent uh, some uh, plainclothes officers to, uh, you know, check it out. And a uh, majority of them in there were loaded with, uh, it was a kind of a cool day and they had on overcoats and uh, they had shotguns, <laughs> pistols, <laughs> you name it. I mean, it was uh, an arsenal there uh, on the ground. Uh, called uh, Abernathy out of the church to talk to him personally and showed him uh, what he was up against, 
what we were up against. And I said, there ain't no way that we can give you protection with all these people and they are like they are. And I'm going to ask you to call off the march. And he said, no, we had this planned and we're going through with it. Of course, the national news media was there, you know, to cover everything because they had, you know, announced this thing several days prior to. So, so they come out of the church, started across a street there, Decatur Street, toward the Capitol. And when they did, all these white people started rushing down. So I called my men to put them back in the church. And so we we made them, made the Abinath and all this group get back in the church. And then I told him uh, he I would let them leave there. Uh, maybe six to eight at a time, and give them the streets they were to walk down so we could furnish protection. But that was a close call there because we could have had a bloodbath right there very, very easily. And of course, Montgomery really was a powder keg, I call it, for well, did uh, some time. At least a little spark could have, could have set it off. So we had to really stay on our toes uh, trying to keep the, the lid on it. Well, did the, uh, did the white crowd disperse uh, once the civil rights marchers were out of sight and removed from the scene? Did you have any trouble with them after that? No. They they started dispersing. They didn't throw uh, they didn't throw bags of feces on you or spit on you or anything like that. No, I guess. No, they didn't. Uh, we didn't have any of that. Uh, uh, but when <laughs> that whole group started coming down, uh, I knew we were in trouble unless we did something quick. So you saved Abernathy's life in all likelihood, and those those marchers. Yeah. But they never expressed any appreciation for that, I suppose. Oh, no. <laughs> no, they don't ever. Excellent question. Mm -hmm. They don't ever express any appreciation for anything you do. You know, it's good. Uh, well, I, I think it's certainly apparent that you did your duty, uh, Officer Lackey, during those very difficult and uh, uh, incendiary times, those very difficult and violent times. You really showed integrity and... and uh, uh, a spirit of of uh, being righteousness just. of being just. just righteousness. So we're gonna let me mention that your the name of your book again is another view of the civil rights movement. Now we just talk about the book. Uh, you can't find it anywhere. You can't find that interview. And I thought that that was very interesting right there. But it's because again, you had the people there, uh, the the Alabama state troopers, all of these maligned police officers across Alabama trying to keep control. And it was interesting what he said. Now, as I always say. I want to give you the final word on this, Keith. We have two minutes left. 
with regards to the violence in the South during those years, the thing that was most remarkable to me was how little there was. And he said that the whites dispersed as soon as they were asked. There wasn't any of this. But, yes, I mean, the whites had seen the blacks engaging in arson and in the terrorism and in all of this stuff. And so, yes, they were there to protect the Capitol. Go to Amarin.com, type in Selma in the search bar. You can read about our visit there. Uh, what did you take of that final clip with the, the interview with Drew Lackey? Well, I'm glad he brought out about the feces and the urine. That's what they did to provoke the police to uh, actions that might fit their narrative. Uh, you never had anything like that at Charlottesville. And, for example, compare. Well, I think you did. You actually had the, 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 the leftists, again, doing the same old tricks as they do. I, I know, but that was never covered by the media. Sure. The media is the key to all of this. That's why the, if there was no media, we wouldn't have had this peaceful protest demonstration, quote-unquote, that they had, uh, you know, in the Civil Rights Movement. Think about this, too. Compare what uh, Drew Lackey's Alabama police did to the demonstrators compared with what the Charlottesville Police Department did with the demonstrators. (laughs) When the roles were reversed. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. That is a, a, a monumental takeaway. But, again, you heard him say he was trying to keep them safe as well and, and no and the, credit you know what have you ever heard that narrative well the charlottesville police didn't try to protect the demonstrators at all like drew lackey did they tried to expose them to violence and they sat by and did nothing as these people who had a permit in charlottesville to demonstrate were being attacked physically and they had cameras running and again with selective editing they used that to prosecute several people that were just engaging in self-defense at Charlottesville. On the other hand, in this situation, the whole uh, purpose of it was to provoke uh, violence against the authorities so that they could basically justify using violence against them and changing the entire uh, situation in the South. The South. South should never have apologized for segregation, James. Segregation is natural and normal among all racial and ethnic groups. Birds of a feather flock together. And right now, blacks who said that that segregation was so bad, what do they want? They want segregated dormitories, segregated graduation ceremonies, (laughs) segregated courses of study. That goes to show you exactly how hypocritical you know, the whole thing another was. Another anniversary this week. This was the week in which George Wallace was first uh, inaugurated as governor of Alabama. So, hey, I'll tell you what, folks. This is the reason you support the show, I think. Uh, whether you've heard interviews like this before or maybe you like it, hearing them again, I think you're enjoying it. Uh, this is going to be a part one of a 12-part series, 11 more to go, some of the most iconic interviews in the pantheon of our 20 years here at TPC. This was one. We've got a lot more. Uh, that uh, you should re-familiarize yourself with as we continue on. Our eye is on the past, the present, and the future here at TPC. We monitor it all. Thank you for being with us tonight. Uh, We'll be back next week. If the creeks don't rise and Jesus tarries, as we like to say. Good night. Godspeed, everybody. (laughs) 